Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would teach us, exhort us, encourage us, redirect us, convict us, comfort us, all the things that you're so good at, Lord. We yield our hearts before you now. Use these for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles out on the back table for you. Um, It's very important that you have one, especially if you can have it in the New King James Version, because that way you'll be tracking with us and all of that. Very important. Start my clock here. The clock's not for me. It's for you. So, uh, so we're right in the middle of the Lord Jesus's public ministry in the sense of it's coming to a close. And we saw last week that he is in the, the temple courts. He is engaging the Pharisees. He, he spoke some, a parable against them, referencing the, the, the fact that they have not done what they were supposed to do related to leading the people and pointing them to the Messiah, him, uh, and they are working in the opposite way, actually, and to turn people away and, and to um, work. And they're about to betray him and all of those things, but they're, they're working against his plan and all of that um, and related to his popularity and people accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And, they, and God always referenced the, in the Old Testament that the, the, the church, I mean, the um, not the church, but the, the nation of Israel as different designations, as the fig tree. And we saw also for this parable that he referenced out of Isaiah and, and Psalms, uh, referenced the, the, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, as a vineyard and as a vine. And these vine dressers, these religious leaders, uh, were rejecting God's messengers and even was Jesus revealed prophetically that they were going to reject the Son even, and all of that. And so he spoke this. He was confronting them. Then they came with some questions related to uh, trying to trip him up, trap him in his words, and, and is, it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, and what's the greatest commandment, and all these things there. And by the end of it, they had no answers to his questions because he asked them questions. And they, from that point on, we're told that they, they didn't ask him any, they didn't dare ask him any more questions after that. And so he is in the middle of this confrontation, being grieved by what he is seeing related to these religious leaders. He's grieved. He is, he is, it, it wasn't an encouraging thing for him at all. You can imagine what it, it, his heart was going through at that time related to what they were supposed to do and how it was, the, the nation of Israel was going to suffer as, a relate, as it relates to them not pointing uh, the people to to Jesus. And so in all of that conflict, in the context of the, those people testing him, at the end of all of this, he finds this place to sit down, finds this place to rest and all of that. And so now he is pointed to 
the treasury there. And um, we see there in verse 41, it says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who, who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow, and that's not talking about like she's in a bad place, like a poor, like, oh, that poor guy, he's, he's really discouraged today. It's talking about monetarily, she's poor. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So the first thing we see in verse 41 is Jesus noticed how the people put money into the treasury. God has entrusted all of us, each of us, with the stewardship. He's given us time. You know, sometimes people say to me, sorry for taking your time. I don't have time. It's the Lord's time. Uh, He's given us time. He's given us talents. He's given us spiritual gifts. He's given us relationships. We need, you know, as we grow in the Lord, we see more and more how he's blessed us with things. We see who is behind these amazing things that we get to enjoy. Jesus at one point said, every good and perfect uh, gift is from above, the Father of lights. But he's also given us spiritual influence. He's given us the capacity to affect others spiritually and to help them and to help them grow and all of that, to build people up. He's entrusted us with the gospel, priceless, priceless stewardship of the gospel, so many other things, but also he's given us money. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know, we just go through the scriptures, okay? So I know that a lot of people from pulpits, they, they look at this subject a lot, and we don't do that. We just go through the scriptures. So I just want to give that disclaimer uh, right away. And all these scriptures are, I didn't write them. I mean, God, God wrote them. He knows that they're what we need to see and all of that. Um, but I'm also aware that there's new believers here, a lot of new believers, not a lot of people that are new to the Bible. I'm also aware, as we t- touch on this subject a little bit, well, probably more than a little bit, but we're going to touch on it, is that probably 70% of our church somewhere in there has experienced a spiritual abuse in the past. Many of you have been hurt in churches. How many would you say here have you been hurt in a church? Okay. Not by other people, but leadership, like leadership decisions and the pastors and all that. Let me see your hands again. Look at that. Look around. Look at all, the, look at all what we've experienced. We've experienced a lot. I've experienced it myself. That's how I came to Calvary Chapel in the first place in 1995, is experiencing spiritual abuse. And so I am very sensitive to what you've gone through because much of that spiritual abuse has to do with finances and people uh, putting pressure on you and manipulating you and basically modeling not trusting that the Holy Spirit is responsible for things and, and they're going to make things happen. A lot of it is from bad models. I recognize that. That's all they've ever seen. So that's what they do. It doesn't get them out of the responsibility or they're not guilty because God's word clearly says what the truth is. But nevertheless, there is that abuse related to finances. How many unbelievers, and they use it as an excuse. We know that that it are all about money. All they ever talk about is money. There have been people that have waited months to get up their nerve to come here, being invited by friends because they're afraid all I'm ever going to talk about is money. 
and you know that have come here for in any length of time that that's not the case at all because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, just not the ones that have to do with money. But some pastors, it seems like they don't know that. They think that the whole thing is about money, it, it seems like. So I'm very sensitive to it. I've been through abuse related to, I mean, I've been to services where there are three offerings. I'm not kidding you. Three offerings, and the last one is a coin offering. It's like they're shaking you down for every last thing, even the coins. I'm, I'm surprised they didn't do an IOU offering, you know, where you put in an IOU on top of that, so you go into debt or whatever. Um, it's, it's horrible. I, one guy came, this evangelist came one time, and he said, I'm supposed to have the largest bill in your wallet. So if you have $500 in 20s, and you have a $100 bill, I'm supposed to have the $100 bill, not the $500, because I'm not in it for money. And I'm like, come on. Ridiculous. How are these people? I mean, and people falling right for it. Falling right for it. It's sad. The people, some people on Christian television are always talking about money and all these things. And, and the, the world looks at it and just goes, it's all, a, it's all a scam. It's all a scam. So I'm very sensitive to that. And, I, and, it, and it can actually make me hesitant to even talk about it at all because I know the hurt that you've experienced as a result of it. But nevertheless, the leaders and myself, and, and we have the responsibility to disciple related to biblical stewardship. It does, just because there's been abuse doesn't mean that we don't have the responsibility by God to tell people the truth about what Scripture says because there's a lot of implications related to it. You know, Jesus, out of the 38 parables that he gave in the Gospels, 16 of those deal with money or possessions. In the Gospels, one out of 10 verses, there's almost 300 verses in the Gospels, one out of 10 deals with the subject of money. There are over 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith, slightly less on faith, but over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. So God knows the importance of it. One of the things about going through the scriptures verse by verse is that you get the subject matter in the proportion in which God revealed it. That's the protection for us. It says somebody can't have a pet doctrine and that's all you ever hear about. Or somebody doesn't want to teach on certain things and they never talk about it. And that's the protection because if, if we're talking about grace all the time going through the whole Bible, that means, must mean it's very important to God or else he wouldn't have revealed it that much. But if he barely touches on something, although it's still important if God says something once, it's still important, but still you can see what he intended related to revealing those things. So it's a huge subject in Scripture. Why? Because there's so many implications related to that, and they're quite substantial. How many marriages have been in crisis over money or fights? How many fights does it cause? I've done a fair amount of biblical counseling. Hopefully it's biblical. Um, but done counseling for sure. You know, hopefully it was biblical. But I've done a lot related to the strife and the fighting and the, all those things because of money. How many people have, are overworking because they are trapped because of debt or they don't want to live within their means? They don't want to be content. And so they are striving and striving and striving, keeping up with the Joneses or whoever. If you have last name Jones, I apologize. You're, but you must be doing pretty well. Um, but keeping up with whomever, you know, you're keeping up, keeping up, keeping up, working harder. The parents are less available for children. They're, you know, it just has this cascading effect of damage that, that happens, and God knows all about that, and he cares about it, and that's why he's revealed those things the way that he has. There is a better way. If we're teachable, 
if we're humble, if we're worshipful, generous, obedient, all those things, because it goes back to the heart. It always does with Christianity. It goes back to where our hearts are at. And and again, like I've said before, God doesn't need our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, we're told in Scripture. In fact, he owns the hills, (laughs) too. He owns everything. He could just... I mean, we, we do ATMs. Why couldn't God do ATMs? You open up your Bible, and there's a little thing in there, and money just comes out. You know, we, we, he doesn't need our money. He, doesn't, he could fund everything. You know, it's been said that the gospel is free, but someone's got to put in the plumbing. You know, and I think that's a good saying. It takes money. It takes money to make things. Who pays for the lights to be on here? Actually, not us. It's our landlord. But, uh, you know, I mean, we're paying rents for that, and that's covering that. Who's, I mean, all the things that we get to enjoy, the hospitality stuff, the, you know, we could go on and on and on. The, 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 the things that uh, go into um, stocking the apartments at the shelter, the sheets and the towels and all that, where does that come from? I mean, there's all kinds of things we have no idea of, of how, what God, how he's working and, and how he provides for things. But it's important that we see in Scripture. It's important that we see that notice in, the, in our verses here that Jesus doesn't notice um, what people gave. doesn't say what. Notice that. He says it noticed how people gave. And, it's, of course, the amount he sees, we're told in the passage, the, the amounts and all of that, that's connected to it. But it goes deeper than that. He noticed how they gave. And Mark could have included the word what if that's what the Holy Spirit led him to, to write down, but he didn't. Jesus noticed if they were wealthy in what they gave, which was a lot, we're told in the passage. He also noticed this widow, this poor widow, this widow that was poor, uh, and what she gave. She gave two mites. Now, how much is a mite? I used to be a fan of this band called Widow's Mite. And, and it was a great band. I was like one of their first groupies. <laughs> and, and so the whole idea was, you know, they're offering everything to God and all of that. And, but a, a mite is a very, 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 very small amount of money. The average, basically it's, a, it's 1%. These two mites together equaled roughly 1% of a, a day's wage, a denarius. That was a day's wage. So today, if you were to work it out, I, I looked up the, the average medium income in America, uh, and it's around 50000 a year, somewhere in there. So that works out to about a little over $200 a day for every day that you work. So it would be 2% of that, around $2. So this lady with the equivalent of around $2 there. And Jesus said that she, that she had put in more than everyone else, because it was her whole livelihood. She had $2 to her name, basically. That's, that's a lot. So it was 100% of what she um, had. And you know what the interesting thing is that Jesus wasn't worried. He wasn't wringing his hands. Oh, no, that was irresponsible. <laughs> what are you doing? That's not right. You need to save a little bit for food or whatever. That was in her heart to do that. And, he, and God knows that when we do what the Holy Spirit tells us to do, it's all part of a master plan that he has. He knows how he's going to provide for us. It's good to be reminded that our source is not our, not our jobs, not our investment. Our source is God because he can provide. Ask Elijah. <laughs> not Elijah did the scripture reading this morning, but Elijah in the Bible. Ask Elijah about how God can provide without um, doing it necessarily through the way that we, we would expect 
So he wasn't worried about how she was going to make it because she knew that she couldn't outgive God. Her heart could not be stopped. And God's looking at the heart. He knew everybody's heart that went by and put those amounts in the treasury. He knew every single one of their backgrounds and everything that they were about and all of that. And, and he knew it. And so I just want to quickly do a little mini topical teaching on some principles related to stewardship. I want to highlight four of them. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture, as we usually do. The first, the first one is we're called to be content. Turn to Philippians 4 with me, please. Philippians chapter 4. Might be new to some of us. Might be an old friend to others. But it's we all need to hear it over and over again. Because at any given moment, we could cease to be content. Philippians chapter 4, I want to begin reading in verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we hear that, that last verse a lot, don't we? It's on a lot of sports things, and people write it on their shoes and all of that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens What's the context here? The context is to be content. That God can give me all the strength I need to be content. Because it's hard. Notice in verse 1 he says, For I have learned to be content. How many of us know it doesn't come naturally to be content? Oh, like, I, I mean, for some people probably more than others, but for most of us, we have to grow in that because our circumstances change. We may be content in some circumstances, but in other circumstances, other chapters in life or other thing that's going on, God has me in the middle of, I struggle with it, struggle with being content. But he says, I have learned. It's a process. What we need to watch out for is covetousness. That's not the subject, to beware of covetousness, as we're told in scriptures, in the scriptures, is not the title of a book that you'll see in any Christian bookstore, usually. Beware of covetousness. And, and so it's one of the things, it's just like eating with Christians, you know, that's okay, we can eat, you know, that's one of the things that, we're, that, that we have freedom, you know, to eat and everything. And it seems like that we don't have a check on covetousness because it's of the heart. This is what Paul talked about in Romans about what got him. Because it was an internal law. It was an internal thing. And, and he, there's no way that he could outwardly measure it. The heart is desperately wicked above all who can know it, we're told in Scripture. So we have to be careful. What is godly, uh, covetousness? It's the ungodly desire for more. It, it doesn't mean that I can't want things. It doesn't mean that I can't desire. You know, it'd be nice to have a pinata for my birthday. I don't know, I'm just thinking of that. You know, it'd be nice. Now, that better not happen just because I brought that up, okay? Because we know I can't break a pinata with some stick or whatever. It's not going to happen. But, you know, just desire something. It's okay to desire. We're told in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if anyone desires to be a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good thing. So it's not wrong to desire things. It's when those things when you're fixated on those things, that they go beyond the scope of what God's told you that you can have for where you're at in your life and all of those things, and you're always wanting more and not content. That's what covetousness is. In the old days, if you can't buy it, you can't afford it. 
But today, we have all these creative ways of getting things when we can't afford them. And financial advisors will tell you, debt is a tool. Just use it, leverage it. No, debt isn't a tool. Debt is debt. That's what debt is. And it's hard for us because in our culture, there's so much screaming at us with marketing all the time saying, if we don't have this, we're not happy. If we don't have this, then we're not complete. And all these things, and it's a lie. It's a lie. And so we have to be careful of covetousness. It's kind of getting quiet in here, but I'm sure you're just, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to me too. Trust me. The number two principle is our giving needs to be sacrificial. I want to stay in Philippians 4, but back up to verse 10. Look at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. The church of Philippi cared so much about Paul. They wanted to help him so badly, and they expressed that to him, but they didn't have an opportunity to do it. They truly, truly didn't have an opportunity. They couldn't do it, but now they were starting to be able to do that. And, and, and as we look at the other scriptures, Philippi is going to be a study in what generosity and sacrificial giving looks like. And Paul's going to re- talk about them and the other churches in Macedonia um, in a moment, as we'll see. Now jump down to verse 14 in Philippians. Philippians 4, verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift. See, there we go with healthy Leaders and unhealthy leaders, they seek the gift. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to my account. No, it doesn't say that, does it? The fruit that abounds to your account. It's best for them. There's an account that God's looking at. You know, account, account is an accounting term. And managers manage financial accounts. There's a ledger that God sees. He's in, deposited money for them and for us And he wants a return on his investment. He's an investor. See God as, we see him as we're the end thing that he's investing in, which is true in some ways. But in reality, he's entrusting us to be the financial advisor or the investor that we take care of his money and find ways to invest it to get a return. And he wants a return. So he's saying to them, I wanted the fruit that abounds to your account. Verse 18, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. See, this is the picture of the burnt offering. When they would, they would bring forth a free will offering back in the Old Testament, and it was completely consumed. They weren't commanded to do it. It was just their heart to worship and to say then that, that, that sacrifice being burned all the way up and, and totally consumed represented their life saying, I want to give all of my life to you. All of, my, all of me is yours to use as you see fit. It was a burnt offering. He's speaking to people that were Jews that knew that whole thing. And he's saying, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. To whom? To God. God's the one that's enjoying it. Just like with the offering that went up in the Old Testament, God's the one that 
that enjoyed that. An acceptable sacrifice. Sacrifices require sacrifice. That's why they're called sacrifice. When they would bring these lambs and these animals and all that that couldn't have any spots on them or blemishes, they were the cream of the crop of their herds, it hurt when they gave those things. It took away from their, what they had. Well-pleasing to God. That's ultimately what we want. Well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. How many times have we heard people quote verse 19? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. But who is Paul saying this to? He's saying it to the church of Philippi who have been sacrificially giving and, and not being selfish and not having a closed hand where God can't put any more in. They had an open hand. And it went out of their hand and it went into their hand easily. That's who he's talking to here. So, when he, of course, God will take care of our necessities. He's promised to do that. He, we're his sons and daughters. But we're talking about the kind of blessing that he wants to give. It comes as a result of us being faithful with what he's already given us. If you had a person up here and you gave them money to go invest for you and they went out and mismanaged it, are, is, more coming their, is more coming their direction? No. You're not going to give them any more. We're that person. We're either being faithful with what he's given to us or we're not. And if we're not, he's not going to be super excited about giving us more to mismanage. And, and I'm talking to myself too. We're all here before God's word. Now turn over to 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to use the churches of Macedonia, of which Philippi was a part in that area there in Greece, He's going to use them as an object lesson and an example of people that were faithful to actually follow through with what they said they were going to do. Because the church of Corinth had said to Paul before, in the past, before this 2 Corinthians letter was written, said, we want to join in on this offering that you're going to be bringing to Jerusalem to help the poor people, the poor believers in Jerusalem. We want to be part of that. And part of what Paul's going to do in 2 Corinthians is tell him, okay, you've said all of that, which is great, but now you need to follow through and actually do it. A lot of people say a lot of things, but you have to follow through and do that. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we have... We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So the source of their giving is God's grace. So no one gets the glory. Okay, Verse 2, that in a, in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Wow. Just think, wow. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freewilling freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now look down to, to uh, chapter, or verse 10, rather. Chapter 8, verse 10. And in, and in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, 
so there also may be a completion out of what you have. So they started it. They, descri- they described this desire, all of those things. Paul says, now you need to follow through with your commitment. You know, a few years ago, we had Financial Peace University. And we're going to have it again, Lord willing, in the, either this fall or in the, in the winter. And it teaches how to be a biblical steward and all those things, how to get on a budget, how to get out of debt. It's very, very good. But what we found, and of course, I don't know because I'm not looking at all of the details of what people give and all that on purpose, but, you know, the, after the, you know, the, the, the church was starting to um, receive more and more giving, and that's not the purpose of why we have it, but it is involved in it because obviously there's stewardship, and that involves giving to the church, but it also involves many other things. But there were people that went through it that not just in the giving side of things, but also with all the other things of being responsible with, our, with his money, like not going into debt and all of that, just did a 180 and, and went back. And it, that's what I'm reminded of when the, the commitment's there, but you don't follow through. It has to be a step-by-step process where you follow through with what you know you should do. That's what he's saying to these Corinthians. Now go down to chapter 9, verse 5 in 2 Corinthians. Let's go down a chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So the church of Philippi was not a church that gave out of obligation and begrudgingly. That's what God doesn't want. See, what I don't like is when people say, I need to pay my tithes, as if it's a bill. And I don't personally like the fact that we can get in a rut with it, and I, we all have done it, where we're not seeking the Lord on our giving. And it's just like a bill that we're paying because he may want us to change it or alter it or redirect it in a way or however he wants to, to direct us. It's not a bill that we pay. It's something that God leads on our hearts to do and to trust him with and obey him and worship him with. And it should be just as spirit-directed as anything else that we do in the Christian life. So it's very important. He doesn't want, he wants a heart of generosity. The woman at the well, or not, excuse me, the widow, she was at another well. Um, uh, the widow, she was there with a generous heart. She was basically offering this, this, this offering as like a burnt offering. Consume it all, Lord. Take it all. And, and God noticed that. This would have been so refreshing for the Lord Jesus after fighting with those Pharisees and all that. He sits down. He's probably physically tired. He looks over and he sees this woman give 100%. And it just, I know it blessed his heart. And it was so important. He brought his disciples around and said, I want you to see something. This is a lesson right here. And he used her as an object lesson, just like Paul used the churches of Macedonia as an object lesson for the churches uh, in, in Corinth there related to following through. He doesn't want us to have this grudging obligation feel. He wants us to give freely as an expression of love for people. You know, it's easy to forget that when you, when you and we're just talking right now about the church, it's easy to, to forget about all, what all those things go towards. And maybe we don't do a good enough job with communicating all of that to you. And I apologize if that's the case. But it affects lives. It affects so many things. It's, it's, 
I can't even tell you how much it affects um, things in, in, in the church. And so he knows that. The third principle is that God truly blesses good stewards. Look at the next verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And I, can, I know that there's people with backgrounds right now where pastors have abused this, and they have just made the whole thing about us, man-centeredness, instead of God being focused on you know, there's something called the word of faith theology where it's a whole system of getting rich and faith is a force. It's a tangible, conductible force like electricity and our words are containers of that force and through the force of faith we can create our own reality and name anything that we want and if we just believe enough and if we give enough money then we can have a Rolls Royce, we can have whatever we want and just be the, basically the, the, the Lord of our own lives in that way and, and that's not biblical at all. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't encourage us that he's going to allow us to reap in connection with what we sow. And he brings up this whole thing of farmers. They'd be very familiar with this. This was an agrarian society. This is a farming society. They know all about seeds. They all know about growth. They all know about Harvesting. Jesus has already talked to him about the Lord of the harvest, spirit, you know, a spiritual harvest, and he needs workers to go out and to, to be workers, to sacrificially uh, serve and all those things. But they know all about what farmers do. Now, what would you think if you know a farmer and they came and you saw them ask somebody, how much of a harvest or how much seed should I plant? And your answer would, would probably hear, you'd hear from someone else or yourself, it's like, well, you know, how much harvest do you want or how much room do you have to grow because there's a, there's a one-to-one relationship between the seed that you plant and the harvest that you get. And what if you heard a, a farmer said, you know, I am not convinced that planting these seeds has a connection to how much I harvest. I don't think they're connected at all. You'd go, what are you talking about? Of course there's a connection. The more seeds you plant, the more that you harvest. And so God isn't interested in the word of faith, false stuff and all that. But what he's reassuring us, I believe the purpose of it for, uh, is, rather, is we don't have to be afraid. We don't have, what if I do this? You know, what, will I be worse off? Will, will something happen to me? Will I be taken care of? He's doing it as a reassurance that you can trust me. I, I want you to plant seed. I don't need your seed. I can produce things without you. But I've given you a means by which you can sow in faith and that you can know that I'm going to bless you. And if you, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. You know, sometimes we don't have money problems. We have stewardship problems. We have, we have, we're not managing his money well. We're in debt. We're, we're a servant to the lender now. We're not on a budget. We're, we're out of balance with our proportion of how much we're paying for things. We're up to f- close to 50% on housing, which should be around 35, and that counts utilities. So we're way out of balance with those things. That's why any financial planner is going to say, you need to be around these ranges and all of that to be financially viable, to pay for all these things that, that you really need. But sometimes we want the bigger house. We want the a thousand square feet more or five hundred and we all that's not evil. 
It's not evil that we want those things and all that, but still, he's given us limitations that we have to go by. And, and all a budget is, is having self-control. That's all it is. It's just, having, it's just a formalized self-control sheet. <laughs> and the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So he has endless ability or endless capacity for us to help us to have self-control. And so we want to completely do all of the discipling that's needed related to that. God just wants to bless. And we ask, how much should I give? Usually that comes from, not always, but that comes from a heart sometimes of what's the minimum? See, you're missing the whole heart issue already if you're asking what the minimum is. For one, what if the farmer said that? What if he said to you, what's the minimum I can plant? You'd go, why are you asking that? Why aren't you asking what's the maximum you can plant? Because it's a one-to-one direct correlation between what you plant and what you reap. So why would you ask that? The issue is the heart of God wants to bless. We're not going to outgive God. We are not going to do that. He will not be a debtor to anyone. He's going to bless us, and he has expectations related to our stewardship. And so we look at Romans chapter 12. I always point to that. Because really, and we'll see a couple, one other point that we'll have in a moment, but the three principles in the New Testament is that it needs to be proportional, it needs to be cheerful, and it, and it needs to be sacrificial. Those are the three. Now, some people say 10% isn't listed in the New Testament, and that's why I don't teach a strict 10%. Although Abraham gave to Melchizedek before the law was given 10%, and some people point to that. I understand where they're coming from. But I think it's a good guideline. I think that love always does more than, than, than law. And if, if there was a law passed that you have to give a certain amount of Christmas presents to your children every year, we'd blow past that. Because they're always minimums. They're always easy to make. They're always easy to meet. It's like the vitamins chart. You know, how many, how many vitamins that you should have a day and how much of this vitamin C you should have. Those are all minimums. Those aren't maximums. But when you love somebody, when you care about someone, when you're invested, Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He didn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. There's a reason for that order. Because where our treasure is, what it's imp- how important it is to us, it affects our hearts. It affects what we're sowing into. It affects what our priorities are. Having an eternal perspective. If, you know, this whole world is passing away, it, God's going to judge it. We don't want to be in. What if someone told you, I want you to invest in this stock and it's going to crash and burn and be a disaster. Oh, let me get it, be in a hurry. Let me go invest in that. You're not going to do that. But when we're investing in this world and in this life as if it's all that we have and all that exists, we believe in our head that it's different, but in reality we're living that way. We are investing in a losing stock. This world's going down, 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 down. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up your treasure in heaven. It wasn't a suggestion. Our priority and our focus needs to be on eternal things. All this outreach we've been talking about, all that requires finances. All that requires everybody doing their part. This whole building, if I told you, (laughs) <laughs> what this is going to cost, we're just getting a sense of that. We, we don't need everybody to do their part related to that. And we're not going to have all the gimmicks and all that. We've all gone through those building programs and all the gimmicks. Again, because God's not limited and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and our source is him and not you, which many churches don't model, unfortunately, we're, we know that God can supply all that. It's not, no problem at all for him to do that. We don't have any money for this building. <laughs> 
And you're like, well, maybe, are you sure we're supposed to go? Yes, God has made it clear. But he will provide. He knows how to do that. And he will bring bring glory to himself through it. No one's going to look at one another and say, it was this guy or this guy or it was because of them that we're here today. We're all going to look and go, isn't this amazing what God's done? We didn't have money for this. We didn't have any of that. But God did it supernaturally. And and it's it's going to bring him glory. So I would say that 10% is a good guideline to start maybe or whatever. But be spirit-directed. If you're out of debt and and you're living within your means and all these things, those things are not going to be that big of a deal. And you're going to see that he's going to bless you. That's the thing that people don't understand. They don't realize he's going to pour on blessing if we obey him, not just in that area, but any area in our lives. He's going, if you say, God, I want to be out of debt, and you work hard to do that, and you determine because you're honoring him and wanting to honor him with that, you don't think he's going to get behind that? If your child was trying to do the right thing, they're trying to do a little lemonade stand and you're not going to get behind it and help them and do whatever it takes to get them what they need, of course he's going to get behind it. Don't think of that. The dollar amount is not the issue. He didn't say, he wouldn't criticize the widow because she gave $2, the equivalent of $2. She gave more than what everybody gave because the rest of them gave out of their abundance. He was impressed with the heart of faith showing itself in the percentage. He, let, he, let, he recognized that this percentage was based on her heart and what she wanted to do and what was going on between her and God and all of that. But that was between her and, and God. But as we do the right thing and as we're great stewards and all of that, he will, he will bless us far beyond what we can imagine. The fourth principle, the final principle, is that God loves a cheerful giver. Look, giver. Look at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. So let each give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, he doesn't want the grudgingly. It's not a bill. He doesn't want, he wants our gifts to be in our expression of worship and giving. He wants it to be full of faith, full of joy, that we're blessing God's heart. You have to remember, you're giving to God. He sees it. It blesses his heart. You are showing him love and, and all the things that you want to show him in your heart with faith and dependence and worship and being a part of what he's doing. You're doing all of that, and 100% of that heart intent is reaching his heart. I mean, if you could give God money, like you could go up and you picture yourself giving God money, it's not any less than what we do, how we set things up here. It's just as much giving him back something that's part, that's his anyway. So God lives a cheerful giver. The word cheerful means hilarious. He loves a hilarious giver. Just someone that's just full of joy and all of those things and their heart's in the right place. That's what he loves. He loves that. Now look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So he's reassuring them again. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower, so that's where we get it, and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you, have en- you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, 
but also as abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He just breaks out in worship as a result of how how blessed they are and how much God is going to bless and how much he's going to use this in their lives for their benefit and also the benefit of everybody that's on the receiving end of of these gifts in Jerusalem and all of that. And then he just breaks forth. He can't think of who's the greatest giver of all, who's the most generous of all. It's God sending Jesus and sending the gospel and allowing us to have salvation as a free gift No one can outgive God. There's no way we could possibly do it. Now, lastly, turn over to 1 Corinthians 16 as we begin to close here. 1 Corinthians 16. Verse 1. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, or lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So this is Paul's instruction here. It shouldn't be a spontaneous thing. This should be planned. This is prayed over. This is prepared This is already coming with, ready to go there. But it's also proportional. We see that. Storing up as he may prosper. Now these Pharisees or whoever they were that was giving with this widow, the situation, they were giving out of their abundance. Obviously, see that's where I think pastors are interesting cats, okay? They're just interesting people. They want, they want to talk about grace, and we're not under the law anymore. But when it comes to giving, all of a sudden, we're under the law again. And we're, lo- you know, and we're living by the law. And there was, they, the Israelites gave more than 10% anyway. But this is where I think, in a practical way, they, they, they mess up. Because they're so pounding that 10% that the people that are wealthy, that's not, now, now that 10% is not sacrificial for them anymore. And so they're, they're giving their 10%, but yet, and then they think that the rest of the 90% is up to them to do whatever they want to do, which isn't true for any of us. All of his money that he gives us is up to him to direct. But, but if they were giving sacrificially, it would be much, 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 much higher than 10% there. And so we have to look at that proportion and all of that. And God, he knows where we're at. He knows our situation. He's so gracious and he knows that if we have a heart towards that, he'll, little baby steps, he'll help us get out of debt. He'll help us get on a budget. He'll help us all of that. And then he's going to bless us as a result of that. And, and all that will do was, will be bring joy to your heart and to my heart. I do want to say before we close here, and I don't know who does anything here, but I know because I've been told by leaders that there are some very, very generous people here. And I purposely don't want to know anything because I don't want any thoughts in my head about their commitment to anything when I'm ministering to them. And that's why I do that. But I just want to thank you. 
you're obeying the Lord in that and and you have the gift of giving and whatever it is and you're giving sacrificially, I don't want to paint a picture at all that there aren't those people there. I know that they're there and I thank you for that. I thank you so much for that. And of course, infinitely more important is what God thinks of it and and it's blessed his heart so much. But I know that as we continue to grow, all those things are going to, more and more people are going to be increasing and being good stewards and all of that. And, and that's the thing. You don't have to worry about us with being irresponsible with funds. You don't have to worry about us bringing it up all the time, harassing you and all of those things. But God talks about, Jesus talked about money way more than he talked about heaven. Way more. Because he knows that it's directly connected to our hearts. We can't serve both God and money. And he knows how it affects us. He knows the problems it causes in our marriages. He knows how it distracts us away from eternal things. He knows how it causes us to have less and less time for ministry. He knows all of those things, and he wants us to be free from those things. And, and so God will lead us. He will direct us. And, and I'm so excited about how he's going to work in all these things as we submit our hearts to him. I want to read one last scripture out of Luke chapter 6, verse 38. We're told this. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Farmers don't struggle with this. But we are farmers in the sense of our financial stewardship. And he wants us to expect a great harvest. But he wants that seed to be sown. And he wants it to be see, uh, sown, that seed to be sown responsibly, spirit-directed, as a form of worship, sacrificially and joyfully, hilariously. And God will do so much beyond what we could ever be, ex- think about or expect because of how great he is at it. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we yield our hearts to you. Help us to be the good stewards that you've called us to be, God. I pray you would free families from the bondage of debt. I pray, Lord, that you would help them have a generous heart. I pray you for my heart that you would work in my heart to become more and more generous as well, more and more faithful, God. We pray that all the ministry opportunities, Lord, that are going to be coming, coming up, that you're bringing up, would be fully funded. We pray that this building would be, all of the, the repairs that need to happen and the renovations and all of that, all of those things would be supplied, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for all of those who are, have been obedient to you and, and all those things. And we just pray, Lord, that you would minister to us And we pray, God, that you would use these verses to bring you glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.